0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Basteck. While things are still unsettled in the world, we are going to be turning to some of our favorite episodes from the past four years, which I hope you'll enjoy. You may remember an episode I did in 2017 about pirate women and how we never really talk about female squashbucklers, just the Jack Sparrows and never the Janes. Well, it turns out that, shocker, pirates aren't the only women that time forgot. Women warriors on land and sea, warrior queens to infantry, haven't been getting their dues. And that's a shame, because there were a ton of them, and they led really interesting lives. Historian Pamela Toller wants us to know their names, and her new book, aptly called Women Warriors, is a global history. From individuals like Buffalo Calf Road Woman, who knocked General Custer off his horse to the 30 Japanese women who comprise the joshigen, there are at least 100 killer screenplay ideas lurking in the history books. If only we bothered to look. Pamela Toller joins us from Chicago to talk about the women warriors who fought because they wanted to, because they had to, or just because they could. Thanks for joining us, Pamela.
1: I'm delighted to be here.
0: I would love to start with an example of how hard historians have tried, how many intellectual shapes they've contorted themselves into, in order to write women out of the historical record of warriors, or just to, you know, not include them. And there are a lot of examples to choose from, but I really like the maddening scale and consistency of all the Viking examples you cite, like the Birka man and the Oseberg ship.
1: Yes. The Burkaman man is an interesting example. It was an iconic Viking warrior. It was discovered 140 years ago. No one's ever doubted it was a warrior, um, and the assumption has always been that because this warrior was buried with weapons, that the Burkaman man was in fact a man. But several years ago, a Scandinavian archaeologist examined the bones and discovered that, in fact, the formation of the bones suggested that the Burka man was in fact a woman. That was confirmed with no doubt whatsoever by DNA testing. And once that happened, there was just a huge flap in the world of Viking studies. You know, people who had never doubted that the Burka man was a warrior were suddenly struggling for reasons to explain why a woman would have been buried with what are traditionally considered male grave goods. Some interesting discussions have come out of that, including the concern about whether or not there are a lot of other misidentified um, remains, but it really reached some interesting levels in the Osseberg ship in Norway. That ship was part of a burial mound that had two women in it and a lot of the um, same burial goods that we tend to think of as male none of the burial goods that we think of as female. So you got all the usual discussion about why a woman might have been buried with male grave goods, you know, that they belonged to her husband or her father and had been buried in respect for him or they were just ceremonial or, you know, maybe that axe wasn't really a weapon. Maybe it was a kitchen implement. But one person took that further than I've seen anyone take it, and he suggested that, in fact, the man who owned the ship and the goods had, in fact, been buried with the two women originally, but that his body had later been removed for ritual purposes and had been removed so carefully that it left no traces behind in the earth. <laughs> um, and you got to give him points for creativity. So that's probably the single most extreme example.
0: Yeah. And you talk about some pretty wild examples that you found in written history, too, where women have literally been cut out of the historical record. There's this one history of Genghis Khan's spoken words where the physical document is sliced off right after he mentions how
1: he's going to reward his daughters. Right. So egregious. Yeah, where he's saying, and to my daughters, and then it's just chopped out. Right. That's so
0: brazen. But there are all kinds of more subtle ways that women are left out of the record, left as footnotes or one-liners somewhere. Mm -hmm. So beyond the really bad examples, how pervasive is this?
1: It's incredibly pervasive. And there are a lot of different ways that it happens. I mean, you can argue, for instance, that women who disguise themselves as men to enlist— In some ways, disappear themselves because the only way they show up in the record is if their disguise fails. Um, So that's that's one thing where it's subtle. Um, There are cases where later historians, in their studies, define women out of the woman warrior role. Um, You know, they say, "Well, she was there, and we know that she picked up a weapon, but her life was in danger, so she was just defending herself. So she's not a combatant." Even though she's standing next to some artillerymen whose battery is under attack and she's fighting alongside them, their combatants, she isn't. Um, actually, there's a fascinating example of that at an official level that happened in World War II. The British developed mixed anti-aircraft gun batteries. So it was men and women together because you know, there was just a desperate shortage of men. The women did all the same jobs that the men did, except they weren't allowed to fire the guns. And because they didn't fire the guns, they didn't get classed as being in combat, even though the men standing next to them were officially classed as being in combat. Um, You get a lot of really twisty thinking. Subtle, not so subtle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that gets at what the question of a warrior is. So how do you define what makes a woman warrior? I mean, how did you decide who to include?
1: I chose warrior rather than soldier because a lot of the women who actually fight aren't necessarily part of a regular army. So warrior was a very careful choice on my part. And I started with a really simple definition. A woman warrior had to be actually holding a weapon and using it. This couldn't be anyone for whom war was a metaphor. That works fine when you're talking about women on the front line in some way. It's a lot less clear once you're talking about commanders because commanders can range from Elizabeth I in her girly form of armor, giving a rousing speech to the troops as they head off, all the way up to someone who's literally leading a charge in a fight. And there's everything in between. And I really didn't want to include the women who were basically cheering the troops on. So I decided to use basically what we end up calling a a battle commander, a field commander. So it has to be someone who's near the front lines all the time, is making command decisions, is planning strategy, may or may not be holding a weapon, but is in the thick of things. After that, as to who got chosen, I wanted to be sure that I didn't just have queens and famous people, and I didn't want them all to be from medieval Europe. I wanted people from all parts of the world, all social levels. In some ways, that turned out to be pretty easy to do because there's a whole set of warrior queens, and that's an interesting set of discussions. But you've also got, at the other end of that, women who defend a besieged city. Those women tend to be just everyday women from the street whose city is under fire. You know, just a blue-collar woman who knows how to swing an axe. So I really wanted a range of women, not just the rich and famous, but people that we otherwise would largely forget about.
0: Well, I mean, and doing a global history means that you have a lot more people to choose from, but I think it also means your range of sources is kind of dizzying. Um, Yes. So... On the one hand, you've got a lot of evidence. On the other hand, you're dealing with the whole planet. So how did you dig them up?
1: Well, I guess the first thing you have to say is if you're doing a global history, you're, you're just by definition dependent on a lot of secondary sources and on translations of primary sources for languages you don't read. Um, and after that, I started often in the footnotes. You know, there's a reference to this person in someone's footnote, and then you begin to untangle it and track it back and find it. In the case of China, for instance, there are these collections of the stories of exemplary women. They're not quite history the way we think of them. They're more like moral exemplars. You know, they're a fable with a, a moral at the end. But a lot of those do tell the stories of women. Speaking of
0: exemplary women, what I like about your book is that not all of them are exemplary. Um, A lot of the women that you talk about are quite badly behaved and perhaps should not be moral examples, even though, you know, they're fiery women, let's say.
1: Right. Well, you know, and, and in some ways we've got to be careful about this bad behavior because so many of the women, often what we know about them is written by either the people they fought against or the descendants of them. So there's this mm-hmm. eternal battle to to adjust for bad attitude. Um, probably my favorite, though, of the women who, if she wasn't bad, at least got a lot of bad press, is a woman named Katerina Savorza, who was—and I'm probably mangling that last name because one of the other challenges of this book is— a lot of names and languages I don't speak, so I'm doing the best I can. She was known as the Tigress of Forley, and she's in medieval Italy. Her husband is the nephew of a pope. He's kind of a jerk, actually, um, but she's a very powerful woman. He ends up being assassinated by his political rivals. She's determined to maintain control over the town, Forley, and she sends word to the commander of the fortress part of the town that she's coming and that once she's in, he's not to open the door. So she gets into the fortress. She's playing the crowd, basically. They get her children. They bring the children to outside the fortress and say, if you don't surrender the fortress, we're killing your children. And by at least some accounts, she flips up her skirt, points to her genitals, and says, I have the way to make more. That's not a good mother by most standards. (laughs) Now, she may, in fact, have not done that. There are other versions where she's already pregnant and points to the stomach. But it's still not what we think of as a heroic woman, though a very competent one.
0: Or even a woman, you know, exemplifying womanly behaviors. You know, even the idea of being a woman who fights can be considered bad behavior in
1: a lot of societies, right? In a lot of cases, right? right. And there is a lot of that in the sources where they're really uncomfortable with the fact that women have gone to war. Um, particularly Rome. Um, you know, the Romans ended up fighting against women a lot, and they just never quite got Used to it. Um, Boudicca is probably the best example. Um, First century BCE, she leads a failed rebellion against the Romans in Britain, but she's by no means the only one. Um, In the fourth century, we get a woman named Moea in what's now Syria who actually leads troops against Rome, is successful enough that the Roman army is forced to sue for peace on her terms. And the source that we have says, and I'm not going to get this exactly right but close, that this, was not, this war was not a contemptible one by any means, though fought by a woman. So even when they're not saying it's bad that women are fighting, there is this constant sense that you've got the, the dog on its hind legs talking, that it doesn't matter if it does it well because it's, it's just astonishing it does it at all.
0: It's interesting, too, because there are a few cases of societies that honor women fighters in the moment. The Amazons or the Scythians, um, the Sandinistas, I think even the first women's battalion of death in Russia would qualify. Right. You could say that the women fighters in Rojava in Kurdistan would count. Um, Absolutely. Did you notice any similarities in these
1: societies? Absolutely. And I would say there's sort of four categories where that's true. One is that tribal societies and nomadic societies are much more accepting of women warriors than large empires, organized states, regular armies, um, with the exception of China, which is very accepting of women warriors for a very long time. But the second is that we get an acceptance of women warriors in times of national crisis. That when the world goes to hell and a woman rises to the top, that's okay, with the caveat that they are often then expected once things calm down to put down the weapons, go back home, pick up their strings. Um, The third is kind of the opposite of that, which is periods of chronic warfare. So that when you've got times where war is almost a way of life, you're far more apt to get an acceptance of women warriors. Medieval Europe's a really good example of that, where we get cases over and over of noble women and queens who are defending castles, but they're also leading attacks. Um, In fact, that's common enough that in the 14th century, Christine de Pizan, who... um, It's the first woman we know of who made a living as a writer, but she also wrote some really important books about women. One of the things she says is that on the list of things that noble women ought to learn are the skills of war. that's, That's clearly a period where even if every woman isn't doing it, it's an accepted idea. So that's one, two, three. And then the fourth one is this sense when a city is under siege, there's almost an expectation that women will pick up weapons and fight alongside men. In fact, really early on, fourth um, century B.C.E., there's a Chinese theorist. He describes them as the army of adult women, and he says that commanders should use them to the largest extent possible in case of a siege. And you could argue that the women who defend their homes in sieges are, in fact, the largest number of women warriors throughout history.
0: Sometimes society will not necessarily praise a woman warrior in the moment, but will sort of retroactively claim her as a nationalist hero, mm-hmm. or sometimes several nations will claim the same person. Have you noticed
1: a pattern in terms of who gets her historical dues and who doesn't? Absolutely. It's often in relation to independence, to you know, throwing the bastards out in some way. The n- most notable example of that is, of course, Joan of Arc, but, you know, Juan de Hadilla, who is claimed by Bolivia and Argentina both, she forms a little army during the Latin American War of Independence. Um, the Trung sisters of Vietnam, they're driving the Chinese out. Women on a smaller scale who get described often as the Joan of Arc of wherever, they're almost always part of independence or at least part of a nationalist movement. Someone who's just fighting to defend a castle doesn't typically get remembered as a uh, national heroine or you know, she doesn't get a airport named after her or a street named after her. <laughs>
0: So let's talk about Joan of Arc, because surprisingly, we've made it this far without mentioning that French elephant in the room. Right? Why are so many women warriors hailed as the Joan of Arc of whatever, as you put it? Why is she always the shining example, the one
1: mold? It's really interesting, because she is. She's used as the example, and yet in some ways, she is the weirdest and least typical of any of the women warriors, but... All of the stuff that makes her such an odd example, the the hearing voices and the being burned at the stake, that gets left out. Instead, what you get is this image of this young woman in white armor, which she probably didn't wear. I mean, she wore armor, but it was probably banged up and battle scarred. But yeah, she does become this, this shorthand for independence and a kind of purity related to that search for independence.
0: Some women do sort of self-consciously claim her as their guiding star, though, right? Like
1: Isabella of Castile. Yep. Isabella of Castile had a biography of her on her bookshelf. A lot of women later claimed her as well. Um, There's a woman named Amelia Platter. In the 1840s in Lithuania, Poland, she very clearly shapes herself on Joan of Arc when she becomes part of this nationalist movement um, and she really doesn't fight for very long and it's clear she had Joan of Arc as a an emblem of who she wanted to be even before there was a revolution for her to take part in
0: yeah i mean that connection that figurative connection that women have made to Joan of Arc makes me wonder about other connections that women warriors have drawn between themselves between contemporaries, between mothers and daughters? The
1: mothers and daughters one is really interesting because that's something I didn't expect going in. But, you know, we tend to forget that women in certainly the medieval and early modern period, in some ways they moved around more than the men did if they're part of a royal family because they get given away. And and which means we lose track of that connection unless you're explicitly looking for it. For instance, you don't think about the fact that um, Catherine of Aragon, who was Henry VIII's first wife, is the daughter of Isabella of Castile. Isabella of Castile was an amazing military leader. You know, in some ways, she was the quartermaster general as well as a strategic planner. Catherine learned at her mother's. And when she got a chance to defend England against an invasion by Scotland, she used everything her mother had taught her. I mean, you watch what she's doing, and she's figuring out exactly how many weapons and how many men a certain town needs to provide. She's making war work at the most basic level. We get some other examples. One of my all-time favorites, there's a woman named Kinane. Alexander the Great's older half-sister, and she led armies in her own right. But she gets trained to do that by her mother, who comes from Illyria, which is um, this nomadic steppe culture where noble women got trained to fight and hunt and ride and use a bow the same way their male counterparts did. So While Alexander's getting trained by Philip of Macedon in the arts of war, Kinane is getting trained by her mother in the arts of war. And in fact, by the time she was in her teens, she had already led armies successfully. And in fact, she defeated an Illyrian queen in hand-to-hand combat. And as far as I know, that's the only battle in history that's recorded where the commanders on both sides of the field were women. Um, Again, a mother-daughter connection that doesn't show up in our history books.
0: Well, I mean, how does this history resonate through the present? How do you see echoes of these issues resonate today?
1: Well, part of it is, I think, the fact that we still are having a discussion even about whether women should fight. The arguments that I hear about why women shouldn't fight – are the same ones that you hear much earlier, this idea that women are not physically strong enough or are too empathic to kill or will distract men on the battlefield. Um, once you don't think they're women warriors, it becomes hard to see them in history. And if you don't see them in history, then it's really easy to make the leap from women didn't fight to women shouldn't fight. So I think the main echo here is still this sense that only the oddest of women fight. The best modern example I can give you of that, and it's modern in relative terms, 1976, the service academies are being opened to women, and General Westmoreland says, again, I don't have the exact quotation, but he basically says, Oh, maybe an occasional woman could do this, but she would be a freak, and we don't run West Point for freaks. That builds directly out of the fact that we forget how often and how successfully women fought.
0: Obviously, all the women warriors of the world could not possibly fit into one podcast episode. But that's okay, because Pamela Toler confesses that she could not even fit all of them into her book gotta be honest, too many ladies is a good problem to have. So for more stories of Daring Do, check out her new book, Women Warriors. We've got an excerpt on our website about the 1st Women's Battalion of Death, which I could have sworn was already the name of a metal band, but I couldn't find it. So please, someone, if it's not taken, name your riot girl band the 1st Women's Battalion of Death. Also in the show notes, links to the Lady Pirate episode, as well as an interview about Njinga, a West African warrior queen who fended off the Portuguese. We'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.